So I frequently, maybe most nights even, fall asleep fully clothed. And we're going to talk later in the show about sleep and guilt. And I often think that this is majorly the result of complete laziness, but also the result of me getting to the end of the day and thinking, I haven't achieved anything. I need to stay fully clothed and alert for as many hours in the day as possible. (laughs) But that generally just leads to me falling asleep fully clothed without having brushed my teeth. How does being clothed help you be more productive longer term? I've still got my utility belt on with my sharpened pencils, my calculator. (laughs) Doesn't Buzz Lightyear have a utility belt? Isn't that the thing that he pushes? (laughs) And that's why he's so productive. And that's the same for me as well. It's got to the stage where a couple of months ago, it, this is this is always worse after I've imbibed a couple of lager shandies. Been on the bevies. Yeah, and after a night out a couple of months ago, my housemate entered my room the morning after, and I emerged from under the covers, not only with trousers, socks, belt, shirt, undershirt on, but also my jacket and scarf wrapped around my my neck. So all she could see of me was my tiny red sweating head <laughs> emerged from the covers fully clothed, ready for the day. Good morning. Good morning. I'm ready to go. <laughs> do you, honestly now, do you always change after you've woken up in this state or have you ever just rolled straight on with, with the next day? I do always change. Mm. There's something about having that, that clean break. Even if it comes at 9.30am the next morning, it's very important. Welcome to Curate. Thank you for joining me, Tom Rolls. And me, Tom Brooks. On another magical journey through music, film and books. Mostly film. Mostly film. And this week we are talking about sleep and all things sleepy, dreams, dream sequences in films, and we have interviews. We do. We have special guests again this week. We're going to be hearing from the uh, festival director and the festival founder of Overnight Film Festival, which is this amazing, really distinctive festival that happens in Eastbourne, where everyone stays over in a hotel, a creepy, glorious hotel, watches films and everyone stays over and discusses them over breakfast the next morning. And we'll have a very special report from Matt Turner, film critic and programmer himself, uh, who has been to the Rotterdam International Film Festival and has experienced this amazing, innovative, cinematic experience where everyone uh, goes into this screening room, uh, finds themselves a bed and stays over for the evening whilst soporific images are projected Mm. onto a big screen. And we're going to finish off by talking about not just the representations of sleep and dreams in film, but also the experience of falling asleep in the cinema, which is something that I, again, do close to most of the time I go to the cinema, I think. I think an important element of this podcast is going to be breaking the taboo around falling asleep in the cinema. We're starting the conversation, we're saying, it's fine, it happens, and more people should be comfortable with it. Mm. But first, sleep in films and dreams in films. Yes. We're going to talk you through some of the very slim proportion of a huge range of films which make the most of those dramatic potentials. I'm going to start on this journey through the world of sleep and cinema with a film which 
It's probably also one of my favourite films of all time. Donnie Darko, this cult 2001 film starring Jake Gyllenhaal. Gyllenhaal. <laughs> and Maggie. Gyllenhaal. They're both in it. They're brother and sister. That's actually not how it's pronounced. It's not, but it's better than what I'm saying. And it's... Anyway, we'll go with that. And I had a really troubled release because it was out in 2001, quite close to around the time of the... September the 11th attacks and the start of the film which was included in the trailer involves part of a plane falling into a house Mm. and so they suddenly pulled all the marketing around it and it got a really low level release and it's one of these films that since its release has gone at cult status and what I think is really impressive about Donnie Darko is the way in which it plays upon the ability of cinema to appeal to you in quite mystical ways that uh, you don't always understand and and the way in which dreams also can reflect elements of your life that perhaps you hadn't previously sort of picked up on or perceived and just to give a brief idea of what it's about for people who haven't um, seen it Donnie Darko is a troubled teenager he's kind of troubled by many of the things that a typical teenage boy is troubled by he feels that his family don't understand him he's bullied at school he feels different to other people he also um, you know, has this tendency to sleepwalk um, and has what his psychiatrist terms daylight hallucinations, so quite trippy visions. And these seem to be influenced as well by, amongst other things, talking to his physics teacher about Stephen Hawking's brief history of time, which talks about the possibility of using wormholes in space to travel through time. And that kind of fuses at one point in the film with Donnie's worldview and he starts to see these vortexes opening up and I think quite significantly as well there's a scene in a cinema in which a vortex opens up in the cinema screen so I feel like the the world of Donnie's visions and the dream world are very much intended as um, explorations of what it feels like to be in the cinema watching a film that is speaking to you in uh, quite profound ways. It's a film that um, is, is a melting pot. It's really difficult to pin down in terms of genre. It's got a lot going on in it. Donnie's condition seems to be a melting pot of all these influences on him, biological, physical, mental. And, you know, you feel, I think as a viewer, when you're watching it, certain elements of the experience really speak to you as well because they are universal to a certain extent. You know, you have these uh, fumbling, the fumbling nature of early relationships and the stresses of going through puberty um, and I think the, the the film is really reminiscent of dreaming particularly that kind of dream when you wake up at the end of it and you feel you have some profound sense of understanding even if if you were to explain the dream out loud, it would be very difficult to make any kind of sense of it. And I think that Donnie Darko is exactly that. It is a really amazing, mystical, profound experience that I think is very difficult to pin down um, and to talk about coherently, as maybe I'm proving. But actually, it's a film that I think is prepared to leave you wondering and is sort of confident in its own ability and power enough to not tie everything up for you and to leave you with this really strange mystical sense of something profound even though you know you you, the narrative ends are not tied up and you don't know how much of Donnie's uh experience is is reality and how much is inside his own head and that blurring those boundaries is such a like tempting possibility for filmmakers I think because Mm. the convention of having a shot on a character going to bed, then cut to a new scene 
often where something fantastical might happen that is out of kilter with the previous, the rest of the film, and then cut to them waking up from a bad dream. It's such a like common convention and like film language that we're really used to. So to leave out that final cut and to leave it unknown whether it's sleep or whether it's uh, waking is something that's like used quite a lot, especially mm. in David Lynch's films as well. I think Mulholland Drive, particularly good example of as a viewer, an experience where you're just waiting for that shot of them launching themselves out of bed, shaking, like wiping the sweat off their brow, perhaps fully clothed, perhaps not. And <laughs> and it never happens. You never get that release. So mm. you're just left in a sense of... Well, you say you finished watching Donnie Darko with a sense of completeness, but... Well, I, I think actually the same... It's not quite the same sensation, but I think you come out of Mulholland Drive, even if you haven't... and, and uh, you know the, the general thing about Mulholland Drive is that you you're supposedly unable to actually figure out mm. what's going on perfectly. This you know this idea of it as a Mobius strip, where if you try and mm. follow one line of the story, um, it doesn't quite fit with the rest of it. But things in and of themselves make a strange kind of sense. And even if you don't come out of Mulholland Drive or Donnie Darko going, this is what happened, you can still come out with this strange sense that there was a sense to it without fully being able to grasp logically what that is. And I think that is so similar to kind of waking up from dreams when you can remember elements of them. But it's like narrative whack-a-mole. As soon as you lock down on one thing that you think, oh, this is what it's about, you then realise other bits of it mm. that pop up at you that don't fit with that theory. I would also add to this, Donnie Darko is a kind of uh, place where the imaginative worlds of Donnie and his real life uh, growing up and his his emotions are kind of fused together. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is this amazing 1920s silent horror film, uh, one of the first horror films ever made, part of the German expressionist movement, which is all about this emphasis on emotion and inner feeling over objective reality. So you get these quite angular, exaggerated shapes, Edvard Munch's scream being sort of the the most famous painting from that era. And the, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is about this mysterious figure, Dr. Caligari, who turns up to a fair with this somnambulist called Cesar, who lives in a coffin. And people can go into the tent and ask Cesar questions, and he will, from somewhere, get the answers. And inevitably, someone goes in there and asks how long they have to live. And things kind of escalate from there. A series of murders happen uh, around the town at the same time. Are they or are they not linked to this new shadowy figure? And what I think is amazing about it is the, the, the dreamscapes that are behind them, which constantly look like they're about to dissolve or collapse. There's a really amazing backdrop of the town where this is set with lots of kind of crowded angular houses. And everyone has this really dramatic makeup on and there's loads of close-ups which are of course quite stylistically in keeping with the silent film era but which here become over-pronounced in quite a nightmarish way there's lots of close-ups on people's faces of them looking shocked or maniacal or whatever so you see these warped ghoulish worlds on screen which are nightmarish and you kind of come as a viewer eventually to to wonder about the relationship between Dr Caligari and Cesar his somnambulist which obviously I'm not going to give away but but resting at the core of these fantastical images was also this cold reality Dr Caligari is an unaccountable and imposing 
um, and at times aggressive figure of authority. And Germany and Europe had just come out in 1920 of a war that had led to a deep mistrust of figures of authority. And so the film kind of becomes a collective nightmare of German society at the time. So on all sorts of levels, melding these fantastical images with a with a stark reality. So in the films we've already talked about, and I think in lots of films which use sleep and dream, it's all about uh, the surreal or about an excuse to get something that's like fantastical out of it, or it's about tunneling into formative experiences in characters. Yes. But something that I read last year, which caused me to think again about sleep and how it's represented, was a something about the association of sleep and guilt. And this was from David Simon, the writer of The Wires, book called Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets, in which he trails homicide detectives in the Baltimore Police Department for one year, and then he writes this non-fiction but really sort of powerfully narrativized that's a word now. It is now. Account of the different investigations. And at one point, uh, he's describing a suspect who's in the interrogation room and is awake, casting around, touching himself in deep forbidden places. That happens in Donnie Dark. According to um, David Simon. And David Simon goes on to write this. This in itself is a bad sign, clearly contradicting rule number four in the homicide lexicon, which states that an innocent man left alone in an interrogation room will remain fully awake, rubbing his eyes, staring at the cubicle walls, and scratching himself in the dark forbidden places. A guilty man left alone in an interrogation room goes to sleep. Which really like, grasped me at the time, and also made me think, if ever I am a suspect in a murder case. You're going to stay awake. Make sure I stay awake, get some pro plus down me before I go into the interrogation room. This is assuming that I'm guilty in this. Of course. I'm the guilty suspect. Yeah. Um, but it made me think of sleep being an escape from responsibility and from guilt. And I watched a film a couple of weeks ago it, as part of a film course, uh, Hidden by Michael Haneke, in which one of the final scenes is the protagonist. The entire film has been about his guilt or lack thereof regarding things he did in his childhood to a North African boy who his parents were planning on adopting, but Michael Haneke's protagonist managed to persuade them not to through various acts of deception which are revealed throughout the film. And one of the final scenes is that character taking two sleeping pills and sort of forcing himself to go to sleep. And the response to that film, especially in France, it being a film that kind of deals with a post-colonial legacy and French guilt in the wars with Algeria, the response has been that that's him there evincing a certain privilege, able to fall asleep, free himself from guilt or escape from his guilt, whereas the the victims, as portrayed in the film, but obviously in real life, are very are not able to do sort of mm. commensurate things. Mm. It would be remiss of us to finish talking about dream sequences in film without mentioning the best dream sequence of recent years in film, which is from Alpha Papa, the Alan Partridge movie. Absolutely. Because it features the line, he's got a shooter, to describe <laughs> a man with a gun. <laughs> Thank you for including that. I'm going to try and get an Alan Partridge reference in every uh, podcast so that no one can ac- accuse us of sounding like Partridge. That's a great idea. Yeah, preempt well done. that criticism. I can't see any problem with that. <laughs> Thank you.
Eastbourne Pier. It's a particularly dank day in February. It's chilly, it's drizzly, and whenever I take my hands out of my pockets, I immediately want to put them back in again. It's that kind of day. In other words, the perfect day for staying inside and doing very little other than watching films, maybe wrapped in your favourite blanket. That's exactly what a bunch of cinephiles are doing in a grand, imposing hotel just next to the pier's entrance. The Queen's Hotel in Eastbourne is a character in itself. It could be the love child of the Grand Budapest Hotel and the Overlook Hotel from The Shining. It is home for the weekend to the Overnight Film Festival. This is only the festival's second outing, but it has already established a reputation for providing a very different kind of film festival experience. Screenings run throughout the day in the hotel's ballroom, interspersed with chances to discuss the film programme with its guest curators over a drink in the bar. There are themed parties and quizzes in the evening, making the most of the hotel's maze of lobbies and lounges. What's more, most of the guests of the festival are here for the whole weekend, staying in the hotel. It's the second day of the festival when I turn up. The morning screening has just concluded, and hordes of film fanatics are streaming out of the ballroom, busily discussing Seventeen, a documentary by Joel Demott about high schoolers in 80s Indiana. Commissioned by American TV network PBS, but never ultimately broadcast, it's a classic example of overnight film festival's focus on the little-known, the alternative, and the underappreciated. Andy Jenkin, one of the festival's technicians, is already preparing for the next screening by busily loading film into a 35mm projector, which sits amidst the back row of the audience, throwing light onto a specially built screen. Sam Cuthbert is the founder of Overnight Film Festival, another projectionist by trade, and a former cinema manager. The festival team is all made up of film festival veterans, and the reason it works and the reason it's like this is it's a festival that we'd all like to come to if we weren't the ones organising it. It's our dream festival. It's what we'd like the festivals that actually pay us money to work on uh, to be like. So we just put our heart and soul into it. We focus on the films and the curators, and it's really important to put them first because it's too easy to get lost with premiere status and showing all these new films i'm of of the mindset that it's great that we have so many new films coming out and there's so much good stuff being produced but we also need to look back and remember what's happened in the past so lots of the things we show are at least 10 years old if not much older and that's important to bring things out of the archive and reinvigorate them with life because films don't work unless there's an audience watching them they're just inanimate objects at that point you need to have a have a watch and then a talk and we put on salons and after the screenings today or the guest curator screenings we'll come in this room and sit and chat and people will lead discussions around themes about the film and just give everyone a chance to think about and kind of talk over it in a really safe space um, how do you think everyone being in the same hotel and the particular experience of that impacts on them watching the films? Do you think that has a? Do you think that has an impact? Well, they're kind of stuck here in a way, so they <laughs> kind of they have to watch the films. Well, they don't have to; they could do whatever they want. Stay in their room for three days. Uh, we don't mind, um, but it really encourages people to watch everything and give everything a try because we sold most of the tickets before we'd even announced what films we were screening so they're not waiting to hear what films we're showing they want to come be here in the hotel and they know that we're gonna 
show something interesting. I'm Chloe Trainer, and I'm one of the festival directors of Overnight Film Festival. I'm Isabel Moyer and a festival film programmer. We build that cinema by hand ourselves, every piece of it we put together. Um, and yeah, it's like 150 seats, so it's quite intimate still, um, but the screen is massive, like the speakers are nice and loud. Um, so I feel like it's, yeah, there's something really special about like pop-up spaces as well mm. and like seeing films outside of the kind of uh, traditional, like formal setting of a cinema that also like lends itself to all of those things about yeah talking to everybody and kind of like taking stuff away and you know bring your pillow down from your room and yeah. make yourself feel at home. Like we want people to yeah really bed in. It make, yeah it makes people aware of the space rather when you're in a cinema. Not all of them, but a lot of them look the same, and yeah. you don't really think about your surroundings. But with here, it's very yeah much. We've tried to yeah. In, Show films that I think would work well in this setting is really important as well. For the opening night film, we showed Velvet Vampire, and I wanted to show a kind of horror film because I think this hotel has a horror aspect. It's lots of rooms, it's kind of old and faded glamour. And There's the mist today off the exactly. sea. Exactly. Very dramatic. So, and so for the last festival, we showed Loves of a Blonde by Milas Foreman, and there's a scene in a ballroom. So, and that's the ballroom in the hotel is where the screening room is. So we wanted to kind of reflect that in the um, setting. Who are the curators that you've seen? Tell me a bit about them. So this year we've got Shiva Feshereki and Zing Seng. Um, and we were really um, keen this year to move away from having people that were like directly related to film. Because um, a lot of the festival is kind of about breaking down this idea of gatekeepers and saying that anyone can be a curator. So we really looked for kind of interesting people that are working in, you know, they're definitely still working in the arts and they have an interest in film, but it's not um, their main thing. Cause yeah, it's it's yeah. not about, it's not a festival where you come and you hear a Q and A with the filmmaker. Um, it's more about like personal response to the film. Um, so Shiva is a experimental composer and turntablist and she does some amazing uh, like sound installation work as well. She's really, yeah, she's a really incredible um, artist. And then Zing um, is the editor at Broadly and she's a writer and journalist and she's uh, working on a uh, book at the moment about like forgotten women in history. Um, so also, yeah, in terms of uh, giving a voice to women, like that's something that we're really keen on doing. It's kind of in everything that we're doing anyway. So it's not kind of about shouting and saying like, we're ticking these boxes. It's just, you know, these are the things we love. Like obviously me and Isabel as women are like really interested in um, women's cinema and like female characters on screen and kind of yeah just telling the stories that like you don't always see up there and mm. and I think that definitely led into uh, our curators of like Zing has just said in her introduction for Velvet Goldmine that she has never like been approached by a film festival to do something like this before um, whereas we were just really excited to see what she would want to show at this kind of thing so yeah, it's just a bit about thinking outside of the box, I suppose, with that stuff. I think also having curators who aren't directly involved with film is a really nice way of inviting and being more inclusive. Because I think when people hear the word film festival, they might not feel invited, like if they don't know enough about film or cinema yeah. or have been to it before. So we want people to come who are just want to discover the overnight film festival or just want to experience new films. Which yeah. Is, yeah. So people are they're living here, they're going to sleep here, going to the festival yourselves do you kind of get weird uh, Eastbourne infused dreams <laughs> combined with whatever film you've been watching because I imagine it's quite an it's quite an enclosed intense experience in a way yeah it is and I think especially for us 
even more so. I mean, mm-hmm. I'd love to come to Overnight as just an audience member one year just to see what, what on earth it's like. Um, I'd say I have more anxiety dreams about all the things that could go wrong um, rather than Eastbourne dreams. But definitely, like, the films, like, they do come into it. It's just one of those things when you're so immersed in something. Do you, so, so people bring their pillows and duvets down today at that point? We encourage or? them to, and by Sunday, normally everyone is, yeah, getting involved on that side of things. Yeah. Um, the bed spread down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For us, it's really fun as well that we're in a hotel, so you, we, there's, like, after parties, and all of the parties are in the same building, so you can't... Well, you can't avoid them, even if you want to. Yeah, a lot of people came to breakfast this morning in pyjamas, and it's nice to kind of see everyone from the night before, which you wouldn't normally do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's, like, cinema and sleep is so intrinsically mm. linked anyway, and, like, I always fight falling asleep in the cinema, and, like, I never leave to go to the toilet, all of those things, because I really want to take everything in. But so often I'll go to the cinema with a friend, and when we come out, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I was asleep for, like, half the film. And for me, I'm just like, but no, because like you need to take everything in. And I feel like it would be really nice actually to embrace that idea yeah. of like moving in and out of consciousness and like how it does kind of start. It just penetrates like your consciousness as well, like the things that you're taking in. Do you yeah. have any particular sort of favourites, favourite films to do with sleep? Favourite films to sleep. I guess there, there are some with very dreamlike qualities and then some with sleep in the name that are nothing... Like Sleepless in Seattle, I kind of watched. Yeah, not uh, about it. It's nothing really to do with it. <laughs> but it's a banger. But it's, uh, but it, oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I just... No. Not to do with sleep. Science of, of Sleep. The Science of Sleep. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. There was an Andy Warhol one where he just filmed his boyfriend for eight hours, I think, just to sleep. sleep yeah, 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 yeah. It's a bit creepy, isn't it? It is a little bit weird. <laughs> and the whole thing's on YouTube. I mean, um, it would be nice on... to go to sleep to. Yeah, like, I have possibly. films not about sleep, but films that I quite like to fall asleep to. Oh, yeah, like, definitely. Like, like, they're not like they're boring films, it's quite relaxing. Okay. Like, I don't know, I used to be really obsessed with Kate Shortland's um, Somersault. Is it set in a ski resort? Nice. <laughs> and it's like, re- and I used to love getting in like my duvet and falling asleep to it because it's just really comforting Super. to be like, yeah, warm and outside. Well, I actually do fall asleep to Netflix, especially yeah. when I'm when I'm stressed and can't turn my mind off. Having like voices in the background is really useful. But what do you go for in that situation though? Do oh, you like trash, for- trash TV. Trash TV. Yeah, okay. like Gossip Girl. That's okay. what I've been falling asleep to recently. <laughs> Because it doesn't matter if you miss something, like, and so you can, what I like to do is get like 20 mins into an episode and then dim the light so it's just the audio, you're not like screwing with your REM sleep, and then roll over, yeah, just go for it, and it's like really soothing and like it kind of feels like you're hanging out with your friends if it's something that you've seen before, and it's great. I can fall asleep for anything. (laughs) <laughs> like as soon as I'm warm and it's dark, I'm out. Like I, even so though, cinemas, no, on, even though cinemas I'm, are pretty, but have you ever watched a film in your life? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I know I'm a, I'm a film fan. I'm saying I'm a programmer, but I actually fall asleep in the cinema a lot. <laughs> like my my husband gets really annoyed at me, and he'll be like. You didn't watch it, or like, uh, I'll fall asleep, and he'll just be like, really, like, I think I fell asleep in Sicaria and Blade Runner and oh, Star wow. Wars, yeah. But that's and so that, That's what he's like, he doesn't understand how I fell asleep in the action. I fell asleep in Argo and got similarly, and in The Godfather. <laughs> Argo makes a bit of sense, though. That yeah, was just Godfather's great. Really, oh, that's encouraging. Because yeah. I wasn't sure. I was just like, I'm not sure whether I'm just. I was quite relieved with what Isabel said there about films that she's fallen asleep in, particularly ones that are loud, crashy violent ones where almost the repetitiveness of that sort of lulls you to sleep. Mm. Like she mentioned Sicario and Blade Runner. Mine would be also Sicario, Argo 
and then just stuff where people are talking about things which I should find interesting, <laughs> but I just can't help myself and I fall asleep anyway, like the Hitchcock Truffaut film. For me, it is particularly action sequences and gunshots, explosions, screams, shouts, revs of cars, screeches of tyres that are particularly soporific. That is always where I'll fall asleep. Were you unlucky enough to see Batman vs Superman, Dawn of Justice? No, I've not seen it. I Too many, far too long action sequences which I managed to snooze all the way through because it none of them like, take the narrative anywhere. It, for me, I think it's like a cinematic dead space where it's okay for me to do what I enjoy most, which is sleeping in nap. the cinema. I don't know what it is about old films and the kind of particular sound quality, the slightly muffled sound quality that old films have, but that just makes me feel drowsy and will get me asleep pretty fast. Do you have anything that you particularly use to get to sleep on that front? I use front? podcasts, and I'm yeah. sure that many people will be using this episode to fall asleep, um, whether they intend to or not. Wake up! <laughs> However, I... I have had one experience where I've actually thought sleep was a perfectly fine addition to the process of watching a film rather than, you know, reflecting poorly on the film itself, which was watching the documentary National Gallery directed by Frederick Wiseman. Frederick Wiseman's this 80-year-old documentary filmmaker who's been doing observational documentaries for decades now where there's no talking heads, there's no narration, there are no graphics, there's no history to it. Instead, it's just a decontextualized exploration of either the benefit system in New York or, in this case, the National Gallery in London. And it's about three hours long. Is not everyone's cup of tea. Is something that I found quite interesting and enjoyed, but is equally something that I fell asleep at least twice during uh, while watching. But that was okay. That didn't ruin your enjoyment of the film. No, because it's not narrative. It's it's all quite comforting. I watched it in South Korea in this huge cavernous um, mall. What do we say in America? In... <laughs> <laughs> like shopping centre. What do we say in the UK? Do we say ma- mall? 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 Mall. Shopping, mall, mall. shopping centre. And it felt very comforting mm. and very relaxing. Mm. So sometimes it is okay to fall asleep in films. And in fact, Matt Turner, who's a freelance film critic and programmer, recently went to the Rotterdam International Film Festival where there was an installation that encouraged you to do just that, to fall asleep. It's called the Sleep Cinema Hotel. And the curator of the experience actually said that he regularly falls asleep in the cinema and it's fine. Here's Matt to explain more. Rotterdam, so it's a festival I've been going to for a few years uh, when I wasn't planning to go this year. But then I saw this project, which was from my favourite filmmaker, a guy called A Picture Pong, where it's ethical. Um, and it just sounded really interesting in a way that other things aren't, and it was a little different from the sort of assignments that I normally have. There wasn't very much information. Um, it looks like it was kind of thrown together fairly last minute, or at least constructed fairly last minute. Um, but it just said that a picture upon where it's ethical was going to be making a kind of half installation, half cinema, and half hotel that the guests could visit and stay for as long as they wanted. It was kind of a large room way up in a commercial building. And then once you step in against the window, there's a massive circular projection screen, which has images playing constantly. (laughs) 
It was supposedly taken from like 100 years of silent film footage. The idea, I guess, was the imagery was supposed to be kind of soporific or like sleep-inducing. So nothing was too dramatic. There were things like boats passing or planes or footage of building, people sleeping, animals sleeping, fairly soothing stuff. While the images played, the room had speakers in each corner and the speakers would just play like a constant sound of waves. And then in front of that large screen, there's like a canopy arrangement of bunk beds arranged in a circle at different levels. And each bunk bed is kind of a self-contained room, but they're all open and they're all amongst scaffolding that kind of connects them. So each bed faces another bed while also facing the screen at the front. So yeah, it's that kind of weird, like a, a dormitory arrangement, but even more intimate, if that makes sense. One of my confusions with the experience was like, is this a hotel where you're with people and interacting, or is it a cinema which is traditionally silent and you and the screen and these people around you kind of interacting in some way, but not really. And also in the cinema, there's, there's like an end point where you leave the space, whereas this, this, the space is also where you're sleeping. So there's like no breakage, just constant immersion. The other thing that's relevant to my experience was that unbeknownst to me when I arrived, I was like going through some kind of viral flu. So I went to the hotel about midnight or something and and my no nose was running and I'm like, oh, I'm fine, it's nothing. And then as the, the kind of hours go by and I'm trying to be diligent because I'm on assignment, I'm supposed to be watching this thing and writing about it, my body temperature starts going and I'm like drifting in and out and having this surreal, fluish experience. After a while, I just kind of gave in, but like, oh, I'm going to sleep, I'm too defeated. And then through the course of the night, I was like waking up in front of this massive glowing circle and not really knowing where I was. <laughs> what was going on or you get that sometimes you know if you change bed normally or you're in a hotel you're like for a few seconds but like this one was different because I couldn't like when I, as soon as I woke up I couldn't identify it as like a room <laughs> and just see the like the, the glowing landscape or a sea scene or something and I'm like truly where am I or what is this There's been an awful lot of waking up hot and sweaty in this episode. <laughs> Just imagining you there, wrapped up watching the screen in your coat. Yeah, full Parker jacket Yeah, and uh, balaclava. Yeah. Worried because you're on assignment and you don't want to waste <laughs> precious time taking off your clothes before getting into bed. It sounds like a really odd experience. You were in this weird space that's on one level quite private because everyone's sleeping and there are some couples in there as well. But then also everyone can kind of see each other. And obviously it's communal in the way that going to the cinema can be. Mm. I, w I wouldn't know how to um, approach the whole thing. I wouldn't know how much to try and stay awake or, or what, really. Or which pyjamas to take. And that would be important. Uh, thank you very much to Matt for that. You can read his full article on the BFI Sight and Sound website. I think we've generally accepted that it's very easy to fall asleep in cinema. But there are, you'll be pleased to learn, numerous ways in which you can prevent this from happening. Would you like to know them? Yes. Thanks. Murray Johns, he's an Australian sleep doctor, he did some research into this, and I'm going to really summarise his research pretty brutally because it's really obvious. Essentially, he worked out that if you're standing, you're less likely to fall asleep 
than if you're sitting. Mm, okay. And good. if you're sitting, you're less likely to fall asleep than if you're lying down. So basically, in the cinema, don't slouch. Okay. Was the conclusion of his research. Any more? Yep. Yeah. The Prince Charles Cinema in Leicester Square does these overnight film screenings mm. and they have collated a handy list of things that you can do to make sure that you don't fall asleep. Obviously, this is fairly specific to overnight movie marathons, but there may be some things that you can take just if you're feeling a bit drowsy before you head into a cinema for an average screening that might pep you up a bit. <laughs> things you can take? Huh? Illicit substances. Oh, so steps you can take. Oh. First of all, do your teeth. Right. For some reason, I think something to do with the minty freshness gives you a little pep, makes you feel a little less muggy and disgusting. Uh, so do your teeth in the cinema toilets beforehand when you're going for your last minute pee. Mm, good for kissing. Good for kissing as well. That's a good point. Also, you if you fall asleep and you're on a date with someone, that's even worse. That, is, that would be bad. Stay hydrated. Don't go for beer. Drink water. Eat fruit. Don't eat chocolate. Uh, it's boring but important. Yes. Uh, because it gives you an energy boost, but you won't get the crash. And also, take a walk between films. That is kind of where it gets into the realm of overnight only, but taking a walk will, because of the amazing research from Murray John's <laughs> International Australian Sleep Doctor... I'm still uh, reeling from his first... Uh, revelation. Revelation. <laughs> Standing up makes it less likely. That is that is the nature of his yeah. research. But Other things you can consider doing is not clambering into a warm bed and getting under the duvet and so, nestling your head down on the pillow. This is the thing. So I did some actual research for this <laughs> podcast and part of it was a How Stuff Works article that referenced this guy. Mm. And he's written this quite complex paper, which I haven't read, but I've read the How Stuff Works summary of it. Mm. And I was sort of writing down some notes so that I would be able to explain it coherently. And then it's that thing where you write it down in note form and you go... Basically, though, what this is saying is this. And then you realise it's completely mm. underwhelming. So that is the end of this week's Curate, for those of you who are still awake. And in a fortnight's time, we're going to be back with another thematic look at various different types of culture. And it is going to be on the theme of on the road. So walking literature, the process of reading and watching films while travelling, various things like that. And don't forget, if you haven't already, to follow us on Twitter, where we'll post various links to all the things that we've discussed on the podcast. If you're too lazy to Google them for yourself, uh, just go to Twitter and search for Curate Podcast. And the podcast is now available to subscribe to on iTunes and on Spotify, hopefully soon on TuneIn as well. And of course, you can always find it on curate.buzzsprout.com. 